Well, hey, Door of Hope Northeast, it's Cameron, and we'll just jump in. Um, this summer has pushed conversations about race uh, to the forefront of, of American culture, um, specifically following the killings of, of Ahmaud Arbery, uh, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. Um, and, and conversations around uh, the relationship between racism and police brutality, uh, conversations around police accountability and reform, um, these have often springboarded into much larger conversations around race and racism and all of its personal and historical and systemic dimensions. Um, and even lately, uh, in the last few weeks, uh, another angle has taken the national stage as uh, a, a war is all of a sudden being waged over how to understand things like American history um, or disciplines like critical race theory. Uh, and these conversations have exploded across predictable partisan lines with just all kinds of vitriol. Um, and, and none of this is to mention the news that just came out a few days ago um, that a grand jury in Kentucky uh, refused to charge the officers who killed Breonna Taylor, just tearing the scab off of a monstrously painful, tragic situation that has many of us across the country grappling with a verdict that just doesn't feel like justice. Um, as at the same time, we, we fear for communities being given over to rioting and violence begetting more violence. And if you're not praying for our country, um, now would be an incredible time to start, uh, frankly. Um, and so, uh, gosh, we are going to take uh, four weeks at Door of Hope Northeast um, to just talk specifically about race. Um, this is something the elders began talking about shortly after George Floyd's death, um, but, uh, but we didn't want to rush into it. And so um, for many of us, this summer has already been filled with tons of conversation, with, with reading, um, with learning, uh, with soul searching um, and reflection. And that's certainly been the case for our elder team. Um, and while there, there are so many angles we could talk about and maybe should talk about, we, we settled on four that we feel like are a good starting point um, for us as a community that we can then build on over the years to come. Uh, we don't expect this is <laughs> going to be anything like the end-all be-all of these conversations, but we hope it's a good start. We hope it's a faithful start. Um, that said, there are also all kinds of amazing resources that have been and are being put together uh, by other churches and thinkers, um, even lots of great things coming out of other churches in our city. And so um, a lot of that's been pulled together, a lot of recommended resources in a document that's on our website that's meant to complement this series. Um, lots of these are books that have already been being read in our community through book clubs um, and so on. Uh, but if you want to dive deeper, and I and hope that you would want to, uh, we have lots of good avenues there to check out. Um, but for our part, um, we want to begin a discussion in our community um, using our chief authority for this discussion and for any discussion, which is the scriptures. Um, taking the time to understand what the word of God has to say about race and the pursuit of justice is going to help us avoid the chaotic reactivity um, that we see all around us. Um, it's going to help us not get swept away uh, into distortion from either the political left or the political right. Um, and it will help us to, to be able to critically evaluate the various ideas and proposals that get thrown at us all the time. Um, to rightfully recognize how to chew the meat and spit out the bones, as they say. That's a really good skill to learn. 
discernment. Um, and ultimately, to help us move forward as those in tune, we hope and we pray um, with God's heart to pursue unity and, and, and justice across racial and ethnic boundaries and reconciliation for that matter. Um, and we don't want um, critical race theory or uh, the, the, the theology of the Puritans exclusively or Fox News or MSNBC or Twitter or Facebook or anything else um, to form the core of our worldview on anything, certainly not on these matters. Um, but we want to be a people who come in humility to what God has revealed in his scriptures and let it supply our authoritative vision and parameters for thinking through things. And so only then are we going to be able to go out into the world and engage and discern and learn in a way that, that lets God finally set the agenda. That's what we really want. Um, so I would also say I know that not everyone is stoked uh, about hearing from a white guy on these things right now. Um, and I know that my experiences and my privileges have shielded me from, from experiential knowledge of so many vital aspects of this conversation. So we thought it was important to learn, to get to learn from, from a black pastor who's ministering in our city as well. And so we're going to have the privilege to hear from Pastor Virgil Brown of Redemption Church, which was actually a, a brand new church that just started a few weeks ago in the same neighborhood as Dorf Hope Northeast. And so we're actually really excited about um, potential partnership opportunity down the road. Who knows what will come of that? Um, but we're excited to have Virgil join us for one of these. Uh, but we also thought it was important for you to hear from your pastors as well and to hear our hearts and um, our wrestlings through these things as well. And so you will. Um, so, but for this first message, um, we're going to set the table by talking through what I'm calling a biblical theology of race or ethnicity. Um, and biblical theology often refers to the idea of tracing themes from the beginning through the end of scripture and seeing how God is kind of moving story-wise through these themes. Um, and so we're going to do that. Uh, we're going we're gonna to trace the theme of God's plan for human ethnic diversity from Genesis to Revelation just to see what kind of story is God telling in these things. Um, so I'm going to try to move quickly through the whole story of the scripture, uh, which is a tall task, I, I know. Uh, and that might make this message feel more like, uh, feel more like a lecture uh, than, a, than a true sermon. Um, and I hope that, that, that you're okay with that this time. Um, and after we've laid this groundwork, um, and, and you can hopefully locate yourself in this story, the following messages will help us to get into the, the really important heart matters and the application and, and the what now, what do we do? But I hope that like your, your love for God and your trust of his goodness as it relates to these things is going to be amplified and, and expanded through, uh, through this message, even though it might be a little bit different. So to start, I just want to start with the question, what is race? Um, um, strictly speaking, race is a social construct. Um, certainly different phenotypical characteristics like skin tone exist, obviously. Uh, we can just see them. You can probably see them right now wherever you're listening to this or watching this. Um, but the idea of race as we commonly think of it, like attaching social interpretations to those phenotypical characteristics like skin tone or whatever, that was largely birthed out of the transatlantic slave trade and, and, and a fresh need that people were feeling 
that slave owners were feeling to create a hierarchy through which they could distance themselves and justify the stealing and subjugating of other people. Um, but how does the Bible define race? Well, it doesn't really define race. Again, certainly the characters and narrators in the Bible um, acknowledge differences in skin tone and so forth, um, but it's almost never mentioned as, as more than a basic physical descriptor. Um, that's the way it was in the ancient world. Um, so a similar but, but better category for understanding groups of people in the Bible is ethnic groups or ethnicities, and you'll hear me use that language a lot. And ethnicity is complex. It's like there are elements that are socially constructed, um, sure, and, and subjectively perceived. And it can involve everything from physical appearance, um, like we've just talked about. Uh, but language, religion, religion's a big one. Geography, ancestry, dress, diet, other cultural considerations. And so we can think of ethnicity more of a cultural observation rather than a physical observation, but, it, but it's, a, it's a broader category that race could sort of fit under. Um, but it's, it's definitely the, the more common way the biblical authors and the characters in the Bible would have been thinking about relationships in these terms, not, not like race as we think of it. So we'll use ethnicity as our lens, which is a broader category under which the physical characteristics like race can fit. All right, when I, I wanna start by talking about the ethnic makeup of the Old Testament world. Um, and for, for many of us, like if you've seen the Cecil B. DeMille Ten Commandments movie or those like it, like you, you might have get this mental picture in your head that the ancient Near East was full of like Northern European-esque people um, kind of doing their thing. And that's obviously not true. Um, the, the, the concept of ethnicity is, is difficult and it's, it's, it's hard to define precisely. But, but there were several groups with clear distinctions uh, in the ancient Near East, and that included the Asiatics, or Semites, which included the Israelites, Canaanites, Moabites, Edomites, and Ammonites, etc. And then you've got the Cushites, uh, which were a group of black Africans. And it's interesting to note that um, there are all kinds of clear portrayals of black Africans throughout the Old and New Testament. The kingdom of Cush and Cushites appear 54 times in the Old Testament and yet are given a fraction of sort of scholarly attention that, that many of the other ancient nations were given. Um, you've got the Egyptians, which were probably a mix of the Asiatics and the black Africans. You've got the Indo-Europeans with the Hittites and the Philistines, and you've got the Libyans, um, which, which very rarely factored into biblical narratives, but they're there some. And so the conclusion here is that the Old Testament world was diverse. It was very diverse ethnically. Um, so with that as the backdrop, I want to jump into the story of the Bible. We begin in Genesis 1, of course, and we'll start with the creation of the first humans. Genesis 1:26. then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And you've probably heard this passage exposited lots of times. For our purpose right now, I just want to note that Adam and Eve were created as representative of all of humankind. And all people of all races and all ethnicities, therefore, 
bear the image in the same way that Adam and Eve do. The, the picture the Bible paints is of a unified humanity with a common origin as the loving creations of God that he has deemed good. Therefore, every person of every race, every ethnicity bears this image um, and is imbued with <laughs> just almost unclassifiable dignity and value and worth from God. Um, that is the bedrock of our view of, of humanity. Um, of course, very quickly, Genesis 3, two chapters later, there's the fall. These first humans, they decide to uh, rebel against God. They choose to define good and evil for themselves. They take of the tree that was forbidden and they introduce sin and sickness and death and rebellion and everything that comes with those things into humanity. And the image of God is marred, it's tainted, but it's not lost. The scripture makes very clear. That same dignity is still there, though it's marred with sin. And so the first humans, they, they spread, they're kicked out of the garden. Um, death and sin are introduced. And uh, now humans carrying sin and death, they spread out geographically. And uh, following the flood narrative, when God kind of reboots humanity, Genesis 10 describes the establishment of many nations and peoples before they're ultimately separated from one another linguistically and geographically as a result of their disobedience to God during the Tower of Babel episode in Genesis 11. So Genesis 10, we have this chronicling of this diverse group of nations. Genesis 11, we have them banding together against God and God frustrates them and separates them and scatters them and confuses their language in this early kind of primordial account of the diversifying of humans. Um, and it's, it's a bad thing, uh, in a sense. It's, it's a result of their sinful choices that they have to be scattered. And it's discord interjected into these human relationships. Um, so that's not primarily racial categories there, but, uh, but, but those physical characteristics are certainly underneath this scattering. And so a question hangs in the air here in the Bible. Genesis, Genesis 11. Um, will these various tribes, these various tongues, these various nations, these various ethnic groups, will they always be divided and scattered? Will this always be the state of humanity? Is the, is the sort of unity idea sort of lost and gone forever? Um, and a hint at an answer comes in the very next chapter, Genesis 12. Uh, we'll read verses 1 through 3. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so the idea is that the varied and diverse nations previously mentioned were the same ones that God planned to bless through this man, Abram, eventually Abraham, and his chosen family. And so God never intended to bless Abraham's family only, but the plan from the beginning was to bless the nations through Abraham's family. And so in taking this diverse humanity, he, shoot, he chooses one man and he says, With, through your family, I'm going to do something special this family is going to be the key to the restoration of the relationship between humanity and me, your creator. And this is actually going to have a, the result is going to be a blessing for all the nations of 
the world, all the families. Well, we keep going. Eventually, this family, Abraham's family, this chosen family, uh, becomes a people, the people of Israel. Um, they find themselves uh, in Egypt, uh, this, this group of Hebrews, and uh, they eventually find themselves in slavery there. Um, and what we see in Exodus 1 through 12 is that uh, the language that, that uh, the writer uses is that of a mixed crowd which was probably made up of Aramean, Canaanite, and Egyptian elements. And so people of other ethnicities, um, other than what we would typically think of as Jews, actually comprised this first group of Israelites, which is amazing, including many Cushites or black Africans. And so the earliest Israel was not actually, to use our language, a monoracial community. Did you know that? And even when God liberated them from slavery in Egypt, Exodus 12, 38 says that a mixed multitude went up with them. So even, um, even the nation of Israel from its first identity forming moment from the Exodus was not based strictly on biological descendancy and certainly not on phenotypical characteristics like skin color or whatever else. But it was <laughs> even Israel itself was to some degree a diverse community ethnically. And once, once he liberates this people, this people of Israel, he gets them out of Egypt and he, he, he begins to bring them this, uh, into the wilderness, prepare them for entry into the land that he's going to give them. Uh, we get this idea in Exodus 19 um, of what their, what their purpose was to be in the world. And this is important. He says, my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The idea is that they are to be a lighthouse declaring who God is and what God is like and inviting the surrounding nations to come and worship. The idea of a priest is a mediator between God and people and to be a kingdom of priests is to be a kingdom that exists to mediate, to have a priestly function to the surrounding nations. A theme that gets brought up many, many times across the Old Testament. Um, much later... God makes another covenant with the great King David as he's established Israel now from not just a nation, but a kingdom. Um, and he promises David, among other things, an eternal house, an eternal descendants, an eternal throne, an eternal kingdom. And we find out later, of course, that Jesus would be the final fulfillment of this promise. The eternal king set on an eternal throne who finally realizes the promises made to and through Israel, who would perfectly sinlessly represent and rule on behalf of God and bless all the nations of the world by offering them salvation and unity with him amongst his people. A couple other things we need to talk about with ancient Israel. First is, is foreigners. So built into the laws that God gave the nation of Israel were all kinds of specific laws about the just and generous treatment of sojourners or uh, Travelers or strangers or immigrants, um, strangers who would have been ethnically different from Israel. And so for one example, listen to Leviticus 19, 33 and 34. He says, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him. You shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. 
In the same way that they were strangers in Egypt and God showed favor to them, they are now to extend that same kind of generosity and favor to the strangers in their midst. Another thing we should bring up is intermarriage. Um, there are a lot of warnings about intermarriage uh, that God gives to the Israelites. Um, but what we really need to note is that these passages always refer to the Canaanites those who were inhabiting the land that God was, was giving to them. And the reason he forbids intermarriage is always theological. Um, it's that their hearts wouldn't be turned away from Yahweh and given to worship of other false gods. Um, no, he, he wants them to be committed to him above and beyond uh, anything else. And so, uh, so marriage across theological lines is prohibited, but never marriage across anything like race. Um, in fact, the narrative even takes time to note that Moses himself married a black woman from Cush, um, something the Lord supports. We see these ideas, these themes as, uh, throughout the Old Testament, especially towards the end as the prophets begin to call the, call the nation back to faithfulness at various times. And I, I just want to close out our section on the Old Testament by reading from Psalm 67. Um, which says this, it says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, say law, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth, say law. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. From beginning to the end of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, God always worked toward a multi-ethnic Israel that would draw the various nations and ethnicities of the world to him, ultimately re uniting the scattered nations together in true worship of the God of the universe. But could this really happen beyond the fits and starts that we see across the Old Testament? Could there be a people of God that would faithfully enact this program and not uh, sort of ha haphazardly do it as Israel was so prone to? Well, now we look at the New Testament. And once again, um, the New Testament world Again, the New Testament takes place about, the events take place about 400 years after the final events of the Old Testament. Um, and like the Old Testament, it's, it's a story that took place in a world far more diverse than we typically think of it. What, what many refer to as Greeks included many Indo-European, uh, Asian, and African ethnic groups. Um, and we can even specifically mention stories like the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8 or the prophet teacher Simon in Acts 13, who both showcase the early and prominent roles of black Africans specifically in the church to point out that like the world of the Hebrew Bible, it was far more diverse than we typically imagine. And throughout the gospels and acts, we see Jesus and the apostles pushing the ethnic inclusivity of the gospel far beyond what the people were expecting or even comfortable with. Even take John 3:16, that verse that we all know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus is the savior of the whole world of every nation within it and his work on the cross as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world it becomes not just the avenue for individual salvation though it's certainly that but it's it's the banner under which all the peoples of the world 
of the various tribes, tongues, and nations can be brought together into one unified new humanity, one unified new people of God. In salvation now, we see clearly uh, what's been hinted at before, that salvation comes by grace through faith in Jesus, not through bloodline or ethnic identity. And this is even exemplified on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, the day the church was born, when the Holy Spirit supernaturally enables the speaking and understanding of various languages. And most scholars recognize this as a kind of reverse Tower of Babel moment. Um, where when the confused and scattered peoples are brought into a mutual understanding and unity. It's this moment of deep symbolic power of the reuniting what was scattered previously. And the rest of Acts uh, expands on this theme as the gospel continues to move out from Jerusalem, just like Jesus said, from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Um, as more and more ethnic groups and new people join the people of God and uh, the church begins to see in reality what what the prophets had spoken of. Um, And I love J. Daniel Hayes, his book, From Every People and Nation. It's on our recommended list. Um, This this book is just a biblical theology of of ethnicity. And uh, if you're into this, you should just pick this book up and read it. It's really good. I'm taking a lot from Hayes. I read this maybe four or five years ago. And uh, brilliant, brilliant. But Hayes says that Luke powerfully reminds the church today through, and he's talking through the gospel and through Acts, that we forsake our inherited, um, the gospel demands that we forsake our inherited, culturally driven racial prejudices and accept all people, especially those different from us, as integral parts of the church. And the demolishing of racial barriers within the church is a task in which the spirit leads us. I would also suggest that the inverse is true, says Hayes. Flourishing racial prejudice within a church is probably indicative of the Spirit's absence. And I think that's a fair conclusion to draw from Luke Acts. We'll keep going. By the time we get into the letters of the New Testament, we see all these stunning statements about the radical reuniting that the gospel is doing. We see Galatians 3, 28 and 29. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And so he's undoing these three major barriers between people groups and arguing that these differences aren't obliterated, but the barriers are in Christ. There is deep unity in Christ, even across these barriers that seemed insurmountable socially at the time. Or Colossians 3.11 that takes this idea even deeper. He says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, and this is notable, barbarian or Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. And so he's actually dealing here, Paul's dealing with this racial prejudice um, uh, that existed from from the Greco-Roman world towards the lowly, lowly Scythians who were thought to epitomize all the negative elements of the barbarian. So he's specifically going after this group that's, that's often denigrated and saying, no, 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 no. In the gospel, Christ is all and Christ is in all. And you don't get that category anymore in that way. And then finally, we see Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. It's this beautiful vision, this dramatic vision of reconciliation between hostile groups of which ethnicity would certainly have been included. These are the kinds of statements we see time and time again across the New Testament of God's heart for his people um, being brought to the fore. But we see it perhaps most dramatically as we step into the final book of the New Testament, which is Revelation. Um, we see uh, this, this beautiful vision laid out multiple times. I'm going to read it just in a couple places. First, Revelation 7, 9, and 10. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Um, Revelation 21, 22 through 27, we now have this picture of uh, what life is like in the heavenly city of New Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth. He says, And I saw no temple by the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so Revelation, it, it shows us this vision of a completed picture of what God has been up to since the beginning, where he has built a radically diverse people for himself, made up of people from all over the world, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, and we then can fill in there from ethnicities and races. They're not assimilated. Here's, here's an important idea, though. They're not assimilated into a distinctionless or, or like colorblind monoculture. But each culture is bringing its unique gifts and glories into the holy city, ultimately to glorify God. And no one dominant culture can do this alone, but it takes the diversity of each nation bringing its spoils into the feet to lay at the feet of God himself. But it's important to note they're not isolated, individualistic, disconnected communities either. They're united around the only thing powerful enough to bring them together, which is their worship of the creator God of the universe, Father, Son, and Spirit. And I, I love the way Esau Macaulay put this in his great new book, Reading While Black, as he's reflecting on these passages. I'll just read them here. Macaulay says, God's eschatological vision for the reconciliation of all things in his son requires my blackness and my neighbor's Latina identity to endure forever. Colorblindness is sub-biblical and falls short of the glory of God. What is it that unites this diversity? It's not cultural assimilation, but the fact that we worship the lamb. 
This means that the gifts that our cultures have are not ends in themselves. Our distinctive cultures represent the means by which we give honor to God. He's honored through the diversity of tongues singing the same song. Therefore, inasmuch as I modulate my blackness or neglect my culture, I'm placing limits on the gifts that God has given me to offer to his church and kingdom. The vision of the kingdom is incomplete without black and brown persons worshiping alongside white persons as part of one kingdom under the rule of one king. And I think Macaulay has it exactly right, right there. Okay, so there you go. As quickly as I could muster it, that was the story of race or more accurately of ethnicity across the scripture. And the idea is that God is going to finish his work of building a people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation who will live fundamentally as one united humanity, but each bringing its distinct, sanctified best, its unique glories of their own cultures to contribute to the unending praise and partnership with God in the new heavens and the new earth. Is that a beautiful picture? Um, and so over the next few weeks, we're going to get into the some of the specific issues um, related to how to do this faithfully and, and, and where we've fallen short as communities um, and as churches, uh, where we've been hindrances even to, to this vision being played out. Um, but for now, what I want you to see is that the call for the church and for our church, Door of Hope Northeast, for our church, on this side of this stunning vision and revelation is to start living in such a way that we begin to function as a preview. I say this all the time about all kinds of different issues, but that's just what the church is in this era. We are a preview or a foretaste of what's to come. We have to strive for it. We have to crucify our flesh. We have to die to ourselves in order to be a preview, a faithful preview of what is to come, unified in our diversity by the one who alone can unify us. Not whitewashed, not collapsed into one monoculture, but a diverse community representing the sanctified best of God's creativity when he designed people. And he, does, he allowed for us to become different and unique and to have different cultural expressions. And so that's the vision. I hope it's inspiring to you. I know that this is perhaps not the most inspiring talk, uh, but I hope as you think and reflect through God's heart for these things and exactly what kind of beautiful community he's building in Christ and what kind of amazing community the cross has enabled, um, I hope you're moved. And I hope you'll think through this and I hope you'll pray through this. And I hope as we get into more of the nitty gritty in the next uh, three weeks, and as we hear from Virgil and myself and uh, Josh Wilder, um, I, hope, I hope you're ready and excited uh, to step into what God has for us because it's good. It's, it's going to be painful at parts and at times, but it's good. We can trust that his vision for us is good. So we're going to pursue it. Um, I love you. Um, so grateful to have this time to, to just dive into these things. I'm excited to do it in my own house church, start talking and having these conversations. Um, and we just pray that, uh, that God will lead us and guide us and, uh, help us navigate it all faithfully.
Amen. Amen.